Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to the third season of Criminalia. This season, we're exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious imposters throughout history. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. One of the most infamous imposters in Scandinavian history, which is an area we haven't gotten too deep in this season, is the so-called False Margaret. Ten years after the real Margaret made of Norway's death, a Norwegian woman claimed Margaret's identity. We aren't actually going to start by talking about False Margaret, though. We're going to start a little further back, at what we'll call the beginning, and that is with Margaret's grandfather, Alexander III, King of Scotland, and how his death was really the catalyst for this whole story. So I'm going to do a quick little warning here that during this episode, we're going to be talking about pregnancy loss and miscarriage. Not a lot, but it is going to come up. So please be aware and please make sure that you feel safe while you're listening to us. And with that, let's get back to Alexander. Alexander ruled as King of Scots from 1249 when he was just eight years old until his accidental death in 1286 at the age of 45. In 1251, when he was 10 and she was 11 years old, Alexander married Margaret of England, the daughter of King Henry III of England. So one of the things actually you're going to see happen in this episode is we have a lot of Margarets. So we're going to try to keep them separate from each other and try not to confuse them. So, okay. During their marriage, they had three children, Alexander, Prince of Scotland, David of Scotland, Prince of Scotland, and Margaret of Scotland. The queen, Margaret of England, died in 1275, well before her granddaughter was born. Margaret of Scotland became the mother of Margaret, maid of Norway, in 1283, and by 1284, Alexander had lost all three of his children, too. After the deaths of his children, the king reasonably began to worry about who was going to rule after him. In 1284, Alexander asked the estates to recognize his granddaughter, Margaret, maid of Norway, as his heir presumptive. The estates during the Middle Ages and in this particular scenario were made up of members of the nobility and royalty. Their power came from what they called feudal privileges. Feudal privileges, to be very clear, were not in any way, shape, or form what you would consider a privilege to the peasants. Their privilege left them poor and exploited by the nobility and expected to both pay taxes and feudal dues. Note here, too, that more than 90% of the entire European population was, at this time, composed of rural peasants. The clergy and the nobility, on the other hand, enjoyed that income from those feudal privileges. So while it was not a privilege to the peasants, it certainly was a boon for the nobles. They also had their own privileges, we're air-quoting that, to deal with. In their case, though, they were exempt from paying taxes. There were three estates, and they made up the Scottish Parliament. 
In addition to asking the estates to recognize his granddaughter as his heir presumptive, King Alexander III also decided to try for a male heir. He had lived as a widow for a decade after his wife Margaret of England had died, and he was ready to remarry. His second marriage was purely contractual, not uncommon among royal marriages at the time. It's something we've talked about many times on the show. And he got married to Yolande de Dreux, daughter of Robert III, Count of Dreux. That was on November the 1st of 1285. Yolande was queen for only a very short time, from late 1285 until the king's death in 1286. It was a very foggy and very stormy night when Alexander died. He was riding from Edinburgh to join his wife at Kinghorn, which is about 11 miles distance. But in the darkness, he became separated from his party and he never made it to his destination. He was found the next morning, believed to have fallen from his horse and broken his neck. Immediately following his death, the queen announced she was pregnant. That news meant Alexander had an unborn heir on the way. So if Yolande gave birth to the heir apparent, no one could stand between that child and the throne. But this is where that sad matter that Maria mentioned at the top of the show comes in. Yolande's pregnancy ended. It is unclear exactly what happened. There are certainly people who have believed that this pregnancy was a hoax, but it has also been put forward that, in fact, the baby was simply stillborn. The devastating end of this pregnancy, again, if that pregnancy had been a real one, meant either way that Alexander's granddaughter Margaret, maid of Norway, had now transitioned. She was not presumptive heir. She was going to be the rightful heir. And that was, as you said, something that he had secured with the estate two years earlier. Margaret, maid of Norway, ascended to the throne on March 19th, 1286, when she was just shy of three years old and living in Norway. There was no adult really ruling Scotland at this time. A group called the Guardian Council was elected by Parliament in 1286 after Alexander's death to govern the kingdom until such time as Margaret, the heir presumptive, was old enough to do so on her own. We're going to take a quick break here for a word from a sponsor. And when we're back, we will talk about how Margaret, maid of Norway's death, deeply impacted Scotland. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, -day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their Brilliant Eye Brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. 
And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past, and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Welcome back to Criminalia. Thirteen claimants came forward for the crown after Margaret's death, but only one burned at the stake. Okay, we're going to do a quick family tree recap. Margaret, maid of Norway, was born in April of 1283. She was the daughter of King Eric II of Norway and Margaret of Scotland, Queen of Norway. Margaret of Scotland was the daughter of King Alexander III, which is how he is Margaret, maid of Norway's grandfather, who managed this whole setup so that she would inherit the throne. Exactly. He is the beginning. But the family tree with the same names is a little bit confusing. So thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't actually have a lot of information about Margaret's childhood. In the 13th century, though, it was pretty rare to keep records of royal children or any children, really. We do know the queen died while giving birth to her daughter, and the queen was buried in Christchurch in Bergen, Norway. We do also know that Margaret, maid of Norway, was raised in Norway and lived with her father before she set sail for Scotland, which was a country she had never even been to, yet she already ruled. Around September of 1290, Margaret boarded her father's ship, and her voyage away from Norway and to her new life in Scotland began. The Bishop of Bergen was her chaperone, and it's likely she had other attendants. She was a royal, after all. That would have been a natural situation. Her arrival was greatly anticipated at Schoon Palace. Schoon Palace is a castle with a colorful history that reaches back probably more than 1,500 years. It is also spectacularly beautiful. It's famous for being the historic crowning site of the Kings of Scots, and it's the home of the Stone of Destiny, which is also known as the Coronation Stone. Ancient kings of Scotland were officially recognized as monarchs there, including Macbeth, the real one, not the Shakespeare character, (laughs) who was crowned around 1031, all the way up to Charles II, who was the last to be crowned at Schoon in 1651. During Margaret's voyage, the ship actually came under siege by heavy storms, and Margaret became very ill. Blown off course, the ship landed at St. Margaret's Hope on Orkney, off the northeastern coast of Scotland. On September 26, 1290, Margaret died at age seven before she could be crowned, and 
before she could actually see the country that she was queen of. Her cause of death is almost always reported as the effects of seasickness, but there's also speculation she may have died from complications of food poisoning. She was returned to Norway where her father confirmed the identity of her body before she was buried with her mother in Bergen. This little girl really had quite a big impact for having lived for really so few years. Margaret, maid of Norway, was the last of the line of Scottish rulers descended from King Malcolm III, the first of a dynasty of kings who ruled Scotland for more than two centuries. Margaret's death not only ended a dynasty, it also began the fight for the Scottish crown from both inside and outside the country's borders. There were 13 claimants, but jockeying for control of Scotland had actually started even before her untimely death. She was, after all, just three years old and was not in Scotland when she became queen. There are some histories that leave her off the list of rulers entirely because she was never formally crowned. Many people saw this as an opportunity to fill a power vacuum, though, by arranging a marriage. So the candidates with the strongest claims to the crown were nobleman John Balliol, Robert the Bruce, John Hastings, and Flores V, Count of Holland. In particular, Balliol and Bruce looked very promising. In 1290, when Margaret was still alive and expected to take the throne, the Treaty of Burgum was drawn up. This was said to end competing claims between Clan Bruce and House of Balliol, as their rivalry was really heating up. Yeah, but it really just wasn't all about their rivalry. It was a treaty to contract Margaret's hand in marriage. The calculating politician in King Edward I of England supported Margaret as ruler, in part because he wanted his son, an infant named Edward and the future King Edward II of England, to marry her. And not because he thought that they would make a great match. Like we said, that doesn't happen very much in this period of time. So with that marital arrangement, Edward hoped he'd made the right political move to make him the king who united England and Scotland. This treaty also established how the two kingdoms, Scotland and England, would be governed after the marriage. The Scots wanted to ensure their political and constitutional identity, and they were not super duper interested in this whole unification concept. Right, and he just keeps shoving it at them. <laughs> so it was agreed <laughs> that Edward, upon his marriage to Margaret, would become Edward II, King of Scots, and Margaret would remain as Queen Regent of Scotland. In turn, Margaret would become Queen Consort of England, and Edward would remain King Edward II. Their heirs would inherit both kingdoms, but the Guardians reiterated, the Kingdom of Scotland would not be united with the Kingdom of England. This all sounds kind of confusing, so it might help to think of it in modern business terms. I know that sounds like a weird comparison, but come with me on this journey. Yes. It is as though the head executives of two companies got married. It would be expected that they would each have some influence and input on each other's work, but that their companies would remain separate entities, although possibly friendly. That would bring up some ethics issues in business, but <laughs> in the realm of historical royal alliances through marriages, it's all good if everyone involved is on the same page. So all in agreement, this deal was accepted and signed by everyone involved, except for those very, very young people, Margaret and Edward. Right, the two people who are actually involved. <laughs> At the center of the whole thing. The Guardian Council agreed to the marriage proposal, but continued to assert that Scotland would remain independent. They wrote, we quote, that Scotland would persist separate and divided from England according to its rightful boundaries, free in itself and without subjugation. 
And independent Scotland wasn't really, though, what Edward I was looking for. As a king, he decided to just sort of ignore all of the clauses he didn't like in that treaty. <laughs> we'll work this out later. It's all, let's have a wedding. <laughs> yeah, right? I want cake. <laughs> but let's get back to this rivalry among the claimants. Fearing war between two rivals to the crown, Robert the Bruce again and John Balliol, the Guardian Council actually asked King Edward I to intervene. Turns out he might not have been the best choice for this, at least not politically, because the king took this as his opportunity to take control of Scotland, which he had been wanting to do from the beginning. Edward did agree to help with one condition, and you know, based on what we said, this is not going to be an altruistic condition. He said he would do it if the Guardians made him Lord Paramount of Scotland, the feudal superior of the realm. That basically means he wanted to be the monarch who could consider all of England and Scotland as his property. Even if he may not have been recognized as their ruler, he still owns all the land. So, so who cares at that point? Right? It's like, there's a de facto enough. power situation in that mix. So as you may imagine, the Guardians didn't like any of this, but it was really too late for them. And Edward's plan was already set in motion. Taking on the role of Lord Paramount of Scotland, the king kicked things off with an order that every Scottish royal castle now fell under his control. And most of the moneyed families in Scotland had significant land in England as well. And agreeing with the king made it so much easier for those families to just keep their estates in both countries. The guardians and the nobility swore allegiance to Edward because of that. It was when Edward expected Scottish nobility to finance and provide military service in England's war against France that the Scots got a little irked and decided to take action. A newly formed group of 12 guardians sent Scottish emissaries to France to discuss just how they were going to deal with King Edward I. An agreement was made between Scotland and France called the Auld Alliance, which boiled down stated that if France was attacked, Scottish forces would come to their aid. The French agreed to do the same if the situation were reversed. The Franco-Scottish Treaty, signed by John, King of Scots, and King Philip IV of France in 1295, in opposition to Edward I of England, was the first alliance between the countries. If you imagined that Edward, upon discovering that there was an alliance between Scotland and France, retaliated, then you would be right. He invaded Scotland in 1296, and he forced John, King of Scots, to abdicate the throne. So you've probably noticed we haven't even mentioned an imposter yet. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting there, we promise, but we had to lay all this groundwork so you kind of know what's going on when she finally hits the scene. Before we get to that part of the story, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Criminalia. Finally, let's meet our imposter, False Margaret. So Margaret, maid of Norway's death, plunged the country into years of chaos and led directly to the first Scottish War of Independence. We mentioned earlier that 13 people came forward to claim their right to the Scottish throne. There was a process to it, which I was kind of surprised at, actually. Each person needed to provide proof. Claimants were required to produce evidence supporting their right to the crown. And then each claim was assessed by, you know who, King Edward I. And remember, before the break, we mentioned the Guardians were having quite a hard time choosing their next leader and had asked him to arbitrate. 
The time when Edward was deciding who had the strongest connection to the Scottish throne was called the Great Cause. On November 7, 1292, Edward I, in a court of 104 auditors, 24 of whom he had appointed himself, decided that John Balliol had the strongest claim to the throne based on his lineage. John was the grandson of David, Earl of Huntington's eldest daughter, and the family line was connected to King Alexander III. Robert Bruce was also a descendant of David, Earl of Huntington, but of his second daughter, and that meant that Robert was second to John. Edward also factored another thing into his choice. He wanted to pick how easily he thought it would be to manipulate the next King of Scots, and John was crowned King at Schoon 13 days later. The beginning of his rule ended the six years of the Guardian's governance of Scotland. Shortly after John's inauguration, King Edward made his move. The new king quickly accepted his role as a puppet king to Edward's rule and, under Edward's oversight, Scotland was invaded by England. Not too long after Margaret's death and immediately after John's rule, Robert the Bruce, who was considered one of the most famous warriors of his generation, led Scotland during the First War of Scottish Independence. It would turn out that each rival would be king. Robert was king of Scots until his death in 1329. But of the 13 claimants, which is a lot, they are the only two who managed to make it to the throne. Right, but there was one claimant who was unlike all the others. A woman who became known as False Margaret. A lot about False Margaret has been lost to time, including what her real name was. The story, as told, goes like this. In 1300, one year after the death of Margaret's father, King Eric II of Norway, a woman landed in the port city of Bergen on a ship from Lübeck, Germany, and she claimed that she was Margaret, maid of Norway. So understandably, a lot of people in Bergen were a little skeptical of her story. She had not died at sea, she explained. She had been exiled to Germany for reasons that are actually very unclear to us. She had married in Germany while she was there, and she and her husband had decided to come to Norway to claim what she believed was her rightful inheritance. However, while the people of Bergen were a little prone to lean away from this story, (laughs) uh, a surprising number of people did support the woman's story, despite two really important and key facts that one would think would mitigate. They're big. Margaret's father had identified his daughter's body shortly after her death. But now that Eric was recently deceased, he couldn't confirm or deny false Margaret's identity. And two, and this is a big one. Huge. (laughs) These two women had a very significant age difference. The real Margaret, maid of Norway, would have been 17 years old in 1300 had she survived. False Margaret was said to be in her 40s, or at least she appeared so. King Haakon V was king of Norway at that time, and he was also Margaret, maid of Norway's uncle. His brother was King Eric II. We've had a surprising number of family relatives say they recognize imposters as the real deal, like pretty much throughout this whole season. But that is definitely not the case with Uncle Aachen. Uh, He didn't believe any part of false Margaret's story, and she was convicted of fraud for masquerading as Margaret, maid of Norway. So because of the distance this story has in the past, as we already said, we don't know the real name of false Margaret. And we certainly don't know what her motivations were. It's possible she and her husband were hoping to take the throne in an epic ruse, 
Maybe this was an act they had concocted themselves, or perhaps it was even part of a bigger plan they had hatched with collaborators. But she also might not have even known that she wasn't really in a position to be any kind of powerful leader in this because she wasn't actually in the line of succession in Norway, which makes any reason for making this claim that much more inscrutable. Regardless of what prompted False Margaret's claim, it ended rather unsuccessfully and with a very definitive final act. In 1301, she and her husband were both burned at stake. But some reports differ in the manner of their executions, though. So all accounts, all accounts report that False Margaret was burned at the stake. But her husband may have been burned, but he may also have instead been beheaded. Not that either of those things Neither are is a great choice. <laughs> I wouldn't like to have to pick one. No, I would not either. Although there are so many details lost to history, we do know False Margaret and Mary, Maid of Norway, did capture imaginations. Enough that False Margaret and the real Margaret have been woven into Norwegian folklore, appearing as the betrayed princess in ballads and tales. There's no way to transition from that into our mocktail section, so I'm just going to be totally honest, I can't do it. So here's the holly. Oh, but that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I know. So I actually wrote down that I was going to make a wobbly transition over to you. <laughs> <laughs> because the mocktail is called the Betrayed Princess. Oh, that's excellent. So here's the thing I knew about Norway already. Mm-hmm. Norway is rather famous for its impressive berry crops. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. They've got this agriculture jam down pat. And so strawberries, raspberries, et cetera, all very, uh, very successfully grown there. And so that got me thinking about a berry drink and a berry base for a drink. And then I thought about a drink that I love and was like, can I make a version of this without alcohol that is super yummy? Have you ever had a, a strawberry balsamic smash? No, I've had strawberry balsamic together, but not in a drink. Oh, delicious. Okay, okay so. This is basically a, a non-alcoholic version of that. Mm-hmm. You're going to put right into your rocks glass, no ice in there yet, one to two slices of lime, depending on how much you like your, um, your citrus element. Love it. Uh, <laughs> one strawberry, a good-sized strawberry, and you want it ripe, a couple of blueberries, and like a nice fat blackberry. And then you're going to put a half teaspoon of balsamic in there. Get out your muddler or your wooden spoon and just give it a little... A little mash. Again, as I always say with the muddler, don't pulverize. You're just trying to bring everything out. You don't want to make like a gross (laughs) pulp of the situation. You want to be able to recognize that it started as fruit. (laughs) So so then once you've got that mashed a little bit, you're going to add a half ounce of simple syrup or a vanilla syrup. You know, I always like a vanilla. Mm -hmm. A dash of lime juice. Give it a little stir. Add in a whole lot of ice. And then you're going to slowly pour your ginger ale over that while you keep stirring it to make sure that fruit integrates with the ginger ale. It becomes this beautiful pinkish red. I also did a version where I threw some basil leaves in the starting before I muddled it. And that did something very beautiful. I bet. You can also, if you don't want to go as sweet as ginger ale, use a club soda instead. Mm. And then uh, you can, you know, garnish it with something like a, a rosemary or a lime or whatever you delight in. But let me tell you how yummy this is. <laughs> <laughs> it is so yummy. 
it's another one that I was like, oh no, I better make it again and make sure it's the same, uh, which really was like, I just wanted more. I think that's just called quality control. (laughs) Right? That's just called, you know, thoroughness. Yes. You don't want to give out a bad recipe. You need to be sure it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Even if it takes six tries. (laughs) Right? Six delicious tries that are all identical. (laughs) If you want to make a cocktail version with alcohol, there are two paths you can take, and you could consider one maybe the what I would call Margaret made of Norway, and the other I would call false Margaret, but they're both delicious, but they have very different flavor profiles. Margaret made of Norway preserves kind of the flavor of the mocktail version. You're still getting all of that berry and a little mm-hmm. the lime that really like brings that berry flavor to like a really zingy place, but you're gonna add an ounce and a half of just like a very clean vodka. You don't even taste the vodka, which makes it a slightly <laughs> dangerous drink if you are a drinker. The other version, which will make it a very different thing in its 40s, perhaps, um, is that you can do instead an, an ounce and a half of a really beautiful gin. I would do one that doesn't have a heavy flavor, but you want that that herbal, completely different. Mm-hmm. Like Gin brings its own business to the table, right? Certainly and does. So that's going to shift the drink around quite a bit in terms of its flavor. And you still get all of those yummy berry flavors, but their flavors shift on your tongue a little bit because you're also getting that juniper bite in Mm -hmm. there. Both very yummy. (laughs) Absolutely serving this at my next get together. If I can just figure out a way to like muddle, you know, eight pounds of berries at once, I'll be fine (laughs) for the day, right? You need a very big pitcher. I need a very big pitcher. (laughs) I can, I got pitchers for days. It's just, it's a lot of fruit. So yes. it's a lot of little pieces and a little more steps than some of the drinks I do, but uh, the payoff is really quite delightful. And then at the bottom, you have all of this beautiful fruit that's had, you know, yummy ginger ale soaking mm-hmm. into it, and it just becomes its own little dessert addendum to the situation. Or in the alternative glass, it's had lovely gin sitting there, just sort of yes. marinating it. That is the Betrayed Princess. And I specifically wanted to start with ingredients that are more commonly found i mean which is not to say those things don't grow in scotland but norway really like likes to tout its ability to grow some pretty beautiful fruit so that's why i want to do that we didn't get a lot of norwegian in the story and i thought that might be a nice way to honor margaret's early childhood life i hope in my heart that she spent her her brief life in the fields of norway just picking beautiful ripe fruit right off the vine and eating it So with that, we will raise our betrayed princesses to you. Thank you once again for spending time with us this week. And every time you stop in, we love it. We will be right here next week once again. And we hope you join us then on Criminalia. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.